seated. Good morning, Coastal Church. Uh, do me a favor, reach inside your bulletin, okay? There's a handout in there. It's really important that you follow along with me. It's great preparation um, for your small group. Um, if you're not yet in a sermon-based small group, but we're doing a six-week journey together. We're asking everybody to join a small group and then do this with us. So that's your preparation. If you're not in a small group, it's not too late, okay? Uh, you can go to the Connect Center. We have some menus out there of, of over 30 small groups you can be a part of. Um, while you're doing that, I want to bring a couple things to your attention. Number one, if you enjoyed that song you just heard, that was written by Pastor Joey. Uh, and uh, yeah, he does. he's a really excellent songwriter. And uh, I've been on him for years that as a church, I've been wanting us to sing more of the songs he's written, and one of the things that he felt like he needed to do, which is important to train your musicians, is, is to record a CD so that he can, you know, teach his musicians his music. So uh, he did that behind the scenes. He's been working hard behind the scenes, and so if you would like, uh, he's got a five CD disc here. Uh, if you'd like to purchase that this morning, it's we have two set, setups out there. Uh, you can purchase that for five dollars, or if you're electronic, okay, you can download his songs on iTunes, Amazon, and this one always feels weird to say, CD Baby. Okay, uh, he's on those three websites, and uh, that's on here, and so that's a great CD. It's called Dead Men Back to Life, okay, Dead Men Back to Life, and, and it's a great CD. You guys can take and encourage him. And by the way, he's selling them to you at cost, okay? That's his cost of production, so uh, he's not making any money off that CD, so go ahead and grab that. Okay, second thing is, last week, uh, a little just church business here. Last week, man, it was a great weekend. We actually, I think, had one of our highest attended weekend, non-Easter weekends ever. We had almost 1,100 people uh, attend at Coastal, and and so, uh, man, that's created some strains, okay, uh, in ministry. So that's exciting. Uh, but we also need people to step in ministry and, and help us serve the people God wants us to send our way. And there's almost not a ministry here that couldn't use your help. But I want to highlight one this morning, okay. Uh, in our children's ministry last week, we had uh, almost 170 children, uh, which is fantastic. And we're just so thankful that God's bringing us a lot of children. And our new children's leader, uh, Elena Rogers, is doing a great job, okay. And so uh, I just want to encourage you, if you've been thinking about, man, where can I plug in? And you love children, um, or maybe you only like children, okay? Uh, we could st probably still a place for you. Uh, so um, she's going to be out at, over here at, uh, at, a, at a, whatever, what are we calling those things? A podium, uh, and taking some folks that might want to just meet her or sign up for children's ministry. We could really have, there is a spot for you in our children's ministry, okay? So uh, now uh, we do, just an FYI, we do background checks in our children's ministry, okay? So that's always a good thing. And I noticed while we were saying that there was somebody's n number up here or check in BEN. Okay, so if you were like one of these worshipers with your head down, eyes closed, and hands up, okay, your child was up there, okay, and that's a security thing for your children, all right? Uh, today, uh, this series actually, as I'm preparing it behind the scenes, I'm realizing this is an equipping series. Um, so if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, I want to give you some tools because we live in a culture and a world that is undermining some core and key ideas uh, to Christianity. And, and so it's a little bit of a equipping series. And, and uh, today you need to kind of put your thinking cap on. And, and uh, this is one of these, again, sermons that you're probably not going to leave here all weepy, but hopefully encouraged uh, in the God that we worship, who he is, how he's revealed himself to us. The series kind of builds on itself. Uh, so if you missed last week, sermons online, CDs at the Connect Center, uh, we talked about why we can trust the Bible. Uh, and today I'm 
calling this sermon, We Believe Weird Things, and, uh, and it's the idea of the doctrine of the Trinity, or, or how the Bible has revealed to us the God that we worship. Uh, the reason I call this We Believe Weird Things is, is in our We Are Coastal class, uh, which is the first Sunday of every month, if you're investigating coastal, it's a great starting spot to find out more about what we believe, who we are, and meet some key leaders. But we talk about eight essential truths at Coastal Community Church that we hold to, where they're unyielding in our doctrine and our key ideas. And the first one is the Bible. It's God's word. And we talked about that last week. But the second one is the idea of the Trinity. And I always introduce that essential doctrine by saying, you know, what, what is the difference between a cult and Christianity? And whenever I ask that question, I think a lot of people go, well, cults, cults believe weird things, right? Like they're sitting around waiting for a spaceship, right, to come take them to another planet. That's a cult, you know, or, or uh, you know, they get a bunch of people and they drink the Kool-Aid. I mean, have you ever heard the phrase drinking the Kool-Aid, right? I mean, it comes from a, a horrific uh, crime that happened in our country. You know, we were talking about this before, 20 or 30 years ago. Uh, a bunch of people followed a guy by the name of Jim Jones and they drank the Kool-Aid that was laced with poison. And, and uh, so we always sometimes, we step back and go, well, they believe weird things. And to which my response is, no, if you're here today and you're a follower of Jesus Christ and you're a Christian, you believe weird things, okay? I mean, it's not about believing weird things. I mean, you say, what do I believe it's weird? Well, you believe a guy by the name of Moses heard from God out of a burning bush. Okay, that's a weird thing. Uh, you believe the Savior of the world was born of a virgin. Okay, that's a weird thing. You believe a dead guy came back to life. All right, that, that's a weird thing. So it's not about believing weird things. What separates Christianity from cults is really one of the main things is what you do with the Godhead. What you believe about the Trinity or don't believe about the Trinity. In fact, many cults will point to the Bible and misinterpret scripture and have a false view of the doctrine of the Trinity. Now, and by the way, you can't turn anywhere in your Bible and find the word Trinity, okay? That's a, a word that we've given to how the Godhead is revealed to us in scripture. And so this is, this is one of those tough truths in um, if you're here this morning and you leave and, and um, you're wrestling with the mystery of the Godhead and the doctrine of Trinity, I'm, I'm probably going to leave you leaving here today mildly disappointed. And if you're a regular here, you know that's how you leave most Sundays, so and that's nothing new there. But, um, but I can't explain away all the mystery of the Trinity. All I can do is lay out in front of you how the Bible reveals the Godhead and the God that we worship. I, um, years ago, my, when my daughter was probably four or five years old, we have this storybook um, that is a detailed storybook about Easter. It's called The First Easter. And so it talks about Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And, and in this book, um, there's this picture and uh, a, a segment where Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. And a lot of y'all will know this part of the story. And Jesus is praying, right? And he's talking to God. And he's asking, basically says, God, if this cup or the journey I got to go on, if this could pass for me, that'd be great. But it's not my will. It's your will, Heavenly Father, that I will do. And, and so uh, we, of course, have been teaching our daughter that Jesus is God, right? And so I'm downstairs. My wife's reading this book to my daughter. And all of a sudden, my wife kind of screams out in panic. Like, I thought something was wrong. Sean, you, you got to get up here, you know? And so I come running up, I'm thinking somebody's choking or dying or something. And she goes, uh, Lauren has a question for you. That's my daughter. Lauren has a question for you. And I'm like, okay, fire away. And she says, daddy, um, when Jesus is praying, who is he praying to? Now, what is she asking there? See, we taught her Jesus is God, right? She's asking about the doctrine of the Trinity, 
That's what she was asking. Of course, I did like any great father would do with a tough question. I'm like, honey, ask your mother. And I turned and walked away, you know. I'm like, I'm going to be able to explain it. I can't even get it around my own mind around it, you know. And so there's some mystery in this, you know. That, that you know how, And then she asked a great question. I mean, her mind at a young age was already beginning to say, well, you've taught me this. And, you know, what's going on here? It was a fantastic question. And so I want to talk about this doctrine. There's going to be some mystery, but it's a, it's a doctrine that we have to hold to as followers of Jesus Christ. And I hope you'll see the importance as we unpack this here this morning. But the first thing I want you to see is that the Bible reveals the God that we worship as one God, but he's revealed in three persons. One God revealed in three persons. This is made clear throughout the Bible, okay? Um, If you were to, um, especially during Jesus's life, Uh, to run into a a New Testament Jew and you ask them what was the most important verse of the Old Testament, they would probably quote what is called the Shema, okay? And the Shema is Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. And Deuteronomy 6, verse 4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is what? One. Now, why is that important? I know we sit here in our culture and we're like, well, why is that such an important verse? Because that verse was given in a culture where there was a lot of polytheism and pantheism. Many, many got this idea that there is only one God uh, in this little culture in the Middle East some two or 3,000, 4,000 years ago. is like, it's earth shattering. It's completely different. And so the, the Jewish nation clung to this verse in, in a world that was completely against them in the idea that there was one God. And so this was a verse that they held very, very deep. And, and, and so the problem for them, uh, for the Jewish nation, is when Jesus showed up. And by the way, you want to know why Jesus got crucified? Now we know from a spiritual and theological level that Jesus got crucified as a payment for sin, okay, to appease the very nature of God, to satisfy his justice and his holiness and his righteousness, okay, the things we could never do because we're sinners. So from that perspective, we know that's why Jesus was crucified. But from an earthly Jewish perspective, you want to know why Jesus was crucified? He was crucified because of the doctrine of the Trinity. Because he was running around claiming to be God and and to the Jewish mind, they're like, no, no, the Shema tells us there's only one God. You you can't make the claims you're making. Let me look at just one here, maybe two, all right? John chapter 10, if you remember last week, I was, as we were teaching about the importance of the Bible and I was talking about John 10, Jesus spends some time on his divinity, that he was human, but he was also God. And, and uh, he spent some, we spent some time there, but I gotta, before we look at this verse in John chapter 10, I wanna give you a little context. The context is, it's actually in the story of John chapter nine where Jesus heals this blind man. So he heals a blind man and he does it on the Sabbath, which upsets the Jewish leaders. Like, you, you're not allowed to do stuff like this on the Sabbath. I mean, can you even imagine that? I mean, can you imagine if it's your kid, your kid's blind from birth into adulthood, and finally he gets healed, and the religious leaders of the day are upset that it happened on the wrong day? I mean, how confused were they? And so, you know, and so they're confused, and this blind guy kind of goes on trial before one of the religious leaders. It's a really funny story, actually. You've got to read it for yourself. He kind of puts a dig at them. He's like, well, hey, why don't you guys, you know, why do you keep asking me? Do you want to follow him too? And then they throw him out, which, you know, had great ramifications to be thrown out of the synagogue. I mean, it had business ramifications. And 
relational ramifications. I mean, he was basically cast out of the community and he shows up before Jesus and all these people show up and Jesus starts doing some teaching in that setting about his divinity. And so in John chapter 10, verse 31, he says, once again, the people picked up stones to kill him. Okay, so he's talking about his divinity, that he is the visible nature of our heavenly father, that I'm God. And so they pick up stones to kill him. And Jesus asked this question, at my father's direction, I've done many good works. Which one are you going to stone me? For which one are you going to stone me? And they replied, we're stoning you, not for any good works, but for what, church? Blasphemy. Blasphemy. Uh, you, a mere man, claim to be what? God. See, that's what got him crucified. They were going to stone him here. And as you, you, you unpack the story, you realize that God's sovereignty was over Jesus' life and it wasn't his time yet to be killed. That was coming. Okay. But they were putting him to death, which was an Old Testament principle because he's, he's claiming to be God because they're claim, looking at the Shema. God, what are you talking about? God is one. I mean, if you're here and you're God, then that makes God two, right? It can't happen that way. In Matthew chapter 9, there's another great story. I don't have it in your handout. In Matthew 9, there's the the, uh, paralyzed guy. And they bring this paralyzed guy before Jesus to heal him, right? And he shows up and Jesus looks at this paralyzed guy and he does exactly what you would expect Jesus to do. He looks down at the guy and he says, I've got really good news for you. Your sins are forgiven, right? Probably not what he was looking for, right? And so the religious leaders in, in Matthew chapter 9 begin to think to themselves, maybe mutter a little bit out loud, they begin to say, wait a, wait a minute, um, only God can forgive sin, right? And the next verse, I think it's Matthew 9, 3 or 4, um, it says, Jesus knew their thoughts. That's always awkward, right? Like never go up to somebody that can read your thoughts, right? You're eating dinner with them. You're like, this dinner's terrible. And they go, speaking of the dinner, do you like what I made? Well, who was talking about dinner? You know, yeah, it's great, you know? Knowing their thoughts, Jesus asks a question. He says, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven or take up your mat and walk? Now, let's think about this from two perspectives, okay? Let's think about it from the human perspective. If Jesus is only human, which is easier to say? Which is easier to say? Think about it. Your sins are forgiven. Why is that easier to say? Who can prove that, right? I guess so, you know. But from God's perspective, which is easier to say? Which is easier to say from God's perspective? It's easier to say, pick up your mat and walk. Why? Because the forgiveness of sins comes at a high cost to God. It comes at the shedding of blood. It comes at sacrifice, okay? And so Jesus says, to prove to you that I am who I say I am, take up your mat and walk. The miracles that Jesus did were not just a magic show. They were to prove his divinity, all right? And you see that all throughout the New Testament. So our God is one God, but he has revealed himself in the scriptures in three persons. Now I'm going to use some big words here, okay? I don't even know what they mean. I kind of do. Okay, so he's revealed himself in three persons. The three persons, I don't have this in your notes, would probably be worth writing down, okay? The three persons of the Godhead are co-equal, co-eternal, and co-substantial. All right, I know some of you are trying to drive that down. They're co-equal, they're co-eternal, and they're co-substantial, all right? This is important 
for us to understand how God has been revealed. These, these are truths that the church has held to for over 2,000 years, okay? And so God has, he, he's one God, and he's revealed himself in three persons. Now, I want to prove this to you in the scriptures, okay, about how the Godhead was a part of creation. So I'm attacking this just from one angle, okay? And I'm assuming that we all, uh, most of us in this room would, would subscribe to, maybe not everybody, but all of us would subscribe to intelligent design of creation, Okay, we can agree, like, you look at creation, you go, man, it's so complex, it's so vast from a, a macro level, and it's so complex at a microcellular level, it's hard to imagine it just happened by chance, right? And I've preached on plenty of sermons about this, so I'm going to work with the assumption we all agree that there's intelligent design, okay, and that God created the earth. So the Bible reveals that all three persons of the Trinity were a part of creation, therefore uh, giving them the acts of a divinity, all right? So let's look at the Heavenly Father, first of all. James chapter 1, verse 17. <clears throat> Whatever is good and perfect comes down to us from God our Father, who created what? All the lights in the heavens, okay? So it's ascribing creative order to God the Father. Now let's talk about God the Son, okay? God, Christ Jesus is also divine. We kind of already hinted on that out of the Gospels about how he was proving his divinity. But in Colossians 1, Paul writes this. He says, Christ is the what? Visible image of what? The invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. Through him, God created what? Everything, right? Through Jesus Christ, he created everything in the heavenly realms and on the earth. He made the things we can see and the things we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, and rulers and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and what? For him, okay? So the son was, Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, was a part of created order, all right? The third person of the Trinity is the Holy Spirit, all right? The Holy Spirit is also divine and also creator. Look at Genesis chapter one, one and two. <clears throat> In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and empty and darkness covered the deep waters. And what? The Spirit of God, okay, was hovering over the surface of the waters, all right? So uh, this doctrine as laid out before us in, in the scriptures, we talked about how we can trust the Bible last week and how we know that it's true and it's this incredibly protected, incredibly divine book, God breathed to us. God has revealed to us this difficult doctrine for us to get our minds around, but still a true doctrine, all right? Now, this is one of those doctrines, church, that we need to guard. This is an idea that we have to guard this is a truth that uh, we, need to, we need to stand up for. Because if we don't stand up for it, then we are worshiping a different God than is revealed in scripture. We're worshiping a false God. Uh, John Piper, one of my favorite pastors said this. He said, there are some words and phrases for which we must be willing to die. Did you hear that? Think about that for a minute. There's some ideas in life for which we must be willing to die. I really believe that's true. You live in this great country because there are men and women that found this country that believe that was true. There are certain ideas and concepts and words for which we must put our life in line. This is one of those ideas. Um, you guys have probably heard some of the illustrations around the Trinity 
Uh, I, would, I would caution you because every illustration falls a little bit short. I, I think we have to get comfortable with the mystery of the Godhead. You've probably heard these illustrations like God is like water, right? He, it, it appears in liquid form, solid form, and, and uh, gas form, you know, in steam and ice and in water. And, and that, it falls short. It actually, that looks a little bit more like modalism than, than the Trinitarian nature of our God, okay? And so just be cautious around illustrations. You, you push them too far and they, didn't, they don't really fit. Now, some of the uh, untruths that we need to guard uh, the doctrine of Trinity from, I'm, I'm going to give you three that are prominent in this culture. There are more, okay? The first one is modalism. <clears throat> modalism teaches us that God is, is not simultaneously God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Not simultaneous, okay? But rather, he appears in different modes or different forms or different manifestations at different times, so God is one, according to the modalist, but he's not three persons. He's one person and he appears in a, in a certain form. And I'm, I'm gonna throw some things out here during this section to equip you. I told you this was an equipping sermon, all right? Um, the United Pentecostal Church believes this, that God is one God and he appears in different modes or different manifestations at different times. Um, the, this is not a true doctrine, all right, it's not a true revelation of who our God is. It begs the question that my daughter asked. You know, a modalist couldn't answer that question, right? I, um, hopefully my wife answered it well with Lauren, okay? But, uh, you know, the God that we know is a Trinitarian God. Um, there are some prominent TV preachers and there's some prominent musical artists that come dangerously close to this doctrine, actually. Now, I've, I've debated about what I, whether I want to throw their names out. I've decided to withhold because I've done some more legwork, and I'm not sure. I, I feel like some of these folks are slippery when asked about this doctrine. And, and the thing that makes me nervous is why would you be slippery about something that men and women have laid their lives, it's about something Jesus laid his life down for, you know? Why would you be slippery on the idea of the Trinitarian nature of our God, all right? And so we have to be cautious we have to guard this truth. The second one is Arianism, okay? It was taught by a guy, a bishop in Alexandria named Arius around 300 AD. Uh, he taught that Jesus was a created being. He was fully human. He was at some point brought into existence by the eternal heavenly father. This heresy was denounced by the council of Nicaea in 325. And this is basically what the Jehovah's Witnesses believe. Okay, so there's, you've read Ecclesiastes, right? Ecclesiastes says there's nothing new under the sun, all right? So uh, the, the, the heresy of, of uh, Bishop Arius was, has just been reintroduced in our culture, all right? And, and uh, it's basically what Jehovah's Witnesses believe. And what it does is it makes Jesus a lesser being, a created being. He's, he's not a suitable sacrifice for sin if he's a created being, because God could have created any being at that point to, to be a suitable sacrifice for sin. And the other false teaching that is prominent in our culture is tritheism, all right? And this stresses the plurality of the Godhead, but not the oneness of the Godhead. It views the Trinity as three separate gods, all right? It's basically a form of polytheism. Uh, and this is what the Mormons believe, and this is what Hindus believe, that, that there's three separate gods, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, but there's, they're not one God. It denies the Shema and it, it makes, it's basically a form of polytheism. And, my, and part of the challenge of that is, well, if God is three separate gods, why not have four gods or five gods or seven gods or, you know, what the Mormons do believe, seven million gods, seven billion gods, right? 
I mean, why aren't we all just the little deities running around? That, that creates a lot of pro- theological problems. And so our God is one, and he's revealed himself in three persons, okay? I want to uh, give you a couple resources, or one, okay? I gave you this last week. Uh, uh, it's not on your sheet this week. It was on your sheet last week, okay? This book, Doctrine, uh, by Driscoll and Gary Brashears, all right? Great, great book, because gives you some great handles around some of these things, all right? I want you to be equipped, church, because when someone comes knocking on your door, you have to know why it's important that we believe in the doctrine of the Trinity. And the most important reason is because that's who God has revealed himself to be, all right? Uh, now, I want to transition here, all right? I know I've given you a lot of heady stuff. Let me talk briefly about the so what. Like, why does this stuff matter? Some of you are, I can tell, starting to, like, maybe check out a little bit, you know, because it's like, what is all? I feel like I'm in a seminary class, okay? And, and so let me, let's talk a little bit about so what, because there is some so what to why it's important that we understand the doctrine of the Trinity, okay? The first reason it's important is it's, it's humbling. It keeps, it keeps us humble, humility. And, and the reason it keeps us humble is because there's some mystery in the doctrine of the God that we've worshiped and we believe in. I, um, I'm going to ask for a show, a real show of hands here so I know who I'm talking to. How many of you all have ever seen the movie Dead Poets Society? Raise your hand. Oh, good. Um, yeah, good. That was better than last night. All right, so um, probably about half of you, okay? Um, how many of you all have seen the, um, the new iPad commercial where at, it quotes the the, uh, from Whitman's poem uh, that talks about you're a pow- there's a powerful play and you get to contribute a verse. How many of y'all see it? It's a great commercial. Maybe you've seen it and you don't recognize it. Okay, that's actually a quote. They're actually playing a quote from Dead Poet Society over that commercial. Okay, so uh, and and so in Dead Poet Society, it's uh, the star of the movie is Robin Williams. He's a he's an English literature teacher in this very stuffy, high cost, uh, high dollar private high school, okay? And so, you know, as you might imagine, most high schoolers are not too excited about English literature, right, and poetry. And so, but he does this masterful job of engaging his students uh, with the importance of poetry. And he starts out, the opening scene in his classroom is he has one of his students read the introduction of the poetry book or the literature book that they're going to use. And he reads a section from a guy by the name of J. Evans Pritchard. And J. Evans Pritchard teaches that the way that you can know a great poem is to graph it on a graph. And he says, on the, on the, uh, on the vertical line, that's the, that's the poem's importance. And on the horizontal line, that's, the, that's the, oh, the poem's perfection. And you plot that on a graph and then you fill in the area and that's how you know if you have a great poem. And so the students are writing this down like he's gonna test us on this. And, they, and the, st- the student gets done reading this introduction and Robin Williams, who plays the, the, the character Professor Keating, he yells out, excrement. That's what he yells. He goes, rip that out of your book, you know. And he goes on to say, you can't plot poetry on a graph. And he, he tells this great speech about, you know, and the kids are excited to rip up their poetry book. You know, they're ripping out the introduction. And, and he says, you can't plot passion and soul and love. There's certain things in life that can't be plotted on a graph. And about the time the principal walks in, like, what is going on here? It's this great scene, okay? And then out of that, he goes on to teach his kids about things like love and beauty and passion and soul. And he says, that stuff can't be plotted on a graph. Why did I tell you that story? I have in my office about five of these books that are this size, okay? Some of you are like, have you ever read that? No, okay, no. 
No, this is called a systematic theology, okay? And the reason we call this a systematic theology is these books on my shelf, they systematize the Bible for us. They give us a framework about the God that we worship and how, and by the way, I can usually tell your background by what systematic is on your shelf. I don't know if you're Methodist or charismatic or dispensational or what I can tell by who you're reading that systematizes the Bible for you, all right? Now, I want to be careful. I don't want to throw the baby out of the bathwater. In fact, next week, I'm going to talk about the importance of a system around the Bible to help us make sense of some of the tough passages of the Bible. And we're going to talk about that. All right. But we also have to be careful that the God that we worship, he can't be systematized. All right. And it keeps us humble. There's a part of our God that's a mystery. And there's a reason we talk about things called miracles, because sometimes he does work outside the system. Not always, but sometimes. And so, we, you know, it keeps me humble that I don't know everything about the God that I worship. He can't be plotted on a graph. And I'm excited about that because I never know what my future holds. In all things, I can bring him glory. And we're on this exciting journey with the God of the universe because he's not a systematic. Okay, he's a living God and he's mysterious. And I don't always know everything about him. One of the... Uh, one of the quotes I wrote down said this, said, God can be truly known, but God cannot be fully known. I want you to hear that. God can be truly known. We can know the truth about God, but God cannot be fully known. And I'm okay with that. In fact, I think God's taken us to a place in the future that we don't know all the details yet. When people ask me about heaven, they want to get specific. Like, I don't know everything. I just... I trust his character. I trust that he paid a high cost for my salvation and he's good and he's loving and he's merciful and I know that side of him and I'm trusting that the place we're going is gonna blow our minds. It's not fully known, but he can be known truly. The way I say it, my much simpler, dumber version is God is God and you're not, all right? So that keeps you humble, all right? Keeps me humble. Here's the second so what about the Trinity, all right? And this is where I'm going to park and finish up here, okay? Is God, in the Trinity, in the doctrine of the Godhead, it reveals to us the importance of loving community. I think this is an important thing to understand about our God. The, the God that we worship, he lives in community. He models for us the importance of loving community. Now, the challenge for you and I is we're sinners, right? His, his love for his self in the Trinity is perfect. We don't, we don't experience that, but what he's trying to do, remember, what, by the way, um, the vision of Coastal Community Church is to do what? To develop you into an authentic follower of Jesus Christ. That's what we're after. So that's why we talk about the importance of community, because our God is a loving community. If you're going to develop as an authentic follower of Christ, you're going to understand you're going to pursue healthy, loving community. All right, and so the first thing I want you to see about a, a love, the loving community of our Godhead is that it talks, he, it's the importance of relationship. Our God is in a relationship with himself. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Relating together in a oneness. He's modeled for that. That's why 
in our hearts, we long for a relationship because we're created in the image of God and there's this desire in us for healthy relationships. That's why we encourage you to, to be in, in a small group. It, you know, you can't do this Christian thing alone. And, you know, we provide certain things that I think are important. You know, we provide this, this church service online and that's important. And I'm, I'm glad people can be a part of our community here, but that's, that's not all there is to developing as a follower of Jesus Christ. You have to rub shoulders with other people. That's why I encourage church membership here. We live in a culture that doesn't want to do membership anymore. Like, why would I do membership? We always say this in our membership class. Membership doesn't make God happier with you. You're not, God's happy with you only if you're in Jesus Christ as a follower of him and committed to him and he's the Lord of your life. That's what makes God happier with you because you're clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Okay, but membership is about committing myself to a group of people who are committed to Christ. That's what it is. It's about community. It's so we understand what relationship looks like because our God, it's a manifestation of the God that we worship and serve. He's a God in relationship. The second thing is, he in this loving relationship inside the Godhead is mutual submission and honor. God models that for us. That's who he is. Jesus honors the Father. John chapter eight. So Jesus said, when you have lifted up the Son of Man on the cross, then you will realize that I am he and that I am doing nothing on my own, but I speak what the Father has taught me. He's honoring the will of the Father, even though it includes suffering. Isn't that fascinating? And the one who sent me is with me. He's not deserted me, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Jesus honors and submits, there's a mutual submission to the will of the Father. And, and then the Holy Spirit honors the Father and draws attention to Jesus. John chapter 15, verse um, 15, 26, he says, but I will send you the counselor, the spirit of what? Truth. Isn't this interesting, by the way? Uh, my small group this week was really, really cool. We were talking about last week's sermon and we're talking about how that moment when your eyes were open to the truth of God and like how that happened. And it's probably different for a lot of us in this room, but ultimately it was a God's spirit thing, spiritual. That's why when Nicodemus came and asked Jesus all these questions and Jesus responded, you gotta be born again. He's like, born again, what, what are you talking about being born again? And Jesus in John three says, this is a spirit thing because the spirit of God leads people into the truth and he will come to you from the father and he will tell you all about who? Me, Jesus, right? So the, the, the Holy Spirit mutually submits in this relationship and it honors the father and, it honor, and the Holy Spirit honors Jesus Christ. And this has some very practical applications. All right, let me give you a couple. Number one, marriage, right? The, 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 the Godhead models for us mutual submission and mutual honor. And, and, so, and, and so Paul, in unpacking what our marriages should look like in Ephesians chapter five, verse 21, he, I believe he's just revealing the very nature of the Godhead. He didn't just pull these ideas out willy-nilly. This is who our God is. And so our marriages need to reflect that. Does that make sense? I'm getting all red in the face because I'm passionate about this, all right? Ephesians 5, 21, talking about marriage. Paul says, and further, Submit to who? One another. Why? Out of reverence for Christ. By the way, whenever you read that kind of stuff, here's what the word I want you to think. I want you to think about the word worship. 
You know why we don't call this time worship? It's corporate worship. Why? Because it's one of the things where the Bible instructs us to gather corporately and sing praises and, and be in the word of God. But it's only one act of worship. Everything you do, when you do it to honor Christ, is worship. And so in your marriage, when you mutually honor and you mutually submit to your spouse, you're worshiping Christ. God is pleased with that. Pretty cool stuff, isn't it? And then he gets a little more strategic. He says, now within that, okay, within that mutual honor and mutual submission, okay, there is a structure to our homes. Uh, for wives, this means submit to your husbands as to the Lord, right? That's a tough one. I get it. It doesn't fly well in this culture. But Jesus did what? He submitted to the will of the Father. He modeled that for us, all right? And then, man, here's one for you. Yours is even harder. For a husband is the head of his wife, as Christ is the head of the church. He's the savior of his body, the church. The church submits to Christ, so you wives must submit to your husbands. Church, the Bible says as men, you're to love your spouse as Christ loved the church. And how did Christ love his church? He died, he sacrificed, he self-sacrificed. Man, I want to encourage you with this. I've been married 20 years. Not one time in 20 years of marriage have I ever had to come home and say, honey, Ephesians 5.22 says. Okay, if your home looks like that, man, you're doing it wrong. Okay, all kidding aside. And man, if you ever say, honey, you need to submit to me, I'll tell you right now, you're doing it wrong. And if, you're, if, you, if you have a marriage counseling issue, you come to my office and your wife says, well, he's always telling me to submit. I'm gonna, tell, I'm gonna look you man in the eye and go, you're doing it wrong. Because a man that would die to himself and meet the needs of his spouse, of his wife, there is no woman on earth that wouldn't love to submit to a guy that puts her needs first. Is that clear? But that's modeling. It it's all comes out of the Godhead. They mutually, the, the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, they mutually honor, mutually submit to one another. In church life, okay, how we live in church life, in community, Romans 14, 19, right? Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and mutual edification. We will only, in, uh, we, in our church life, it's an outgrowth of the God that we worship, all right? Inside the Godhead, there's unified, there's unified diversity, all right, there's unified diversity. Jesus submitted to his life to the will of the Father, yet Jesus is the object of our worship. If you know Philippians chapter two, it talks about how Jesus humbled himself, okay? Took on the, the life of a bondservant. And Paul goes on to write in Philippians 2, 9, says, because of this, God raised him up to the heights of heaven and gave him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is what? Lord, okay, he's Lord to the glory of, the fa of God the Father. Here's the deal, here's what this means, all right? There's a unified diversity as followers of Christ who we lift up is Jesus. That's why we always talk about Jesus, but Jesus then turns and gives glory to the Father. You see that in there? And so we're gonna talk about Jesus a whole lot. Not that we're disinterested in God the Father. Jesus did the will of the Father. We worship, we bow a knee in lordship to Jesus and Jesus in turn uh, honors and glorifies the Father's unified diversity. Same way in church life, right? Why don't you look around the room? Look around the room for a minute. Yeah, you all still looking at me. Look around, I know, it's, it's awkward. I see it every week, okay? Um, <laughs> it's awkward. Some of the people you just looked at, they are super important to this church body. 
Every person in this room that's a follower of Jesus Christ is important to the body of Christ right here. Every person has a part to play. Every person plays a role in making Jesus famous through the life and body life of Coastal Community Church. Whether you like that person or not, they're a purpose and they're a part of the body of Jesus. Unified diversity. Romans chapter 12, verse 4 and 5 says, Just as our bodies have many parts and each part has a special function, so it is with Christ's body. It's talking about the church. We are all parts of this one body. Each of us has a different work to do. And since we're all one body in Christ, we belong to each other. And each of us needs all the others. Isn't that fascinating? The person, people you just looked at, you need that person to help you grow to be more like Jesus Christ. And what's interesting is this unified diversity. It's not something that we look in our Bible and just came up with willy-nilly. It's an outflow of the God that we worship. The importance of the doctrine of the Trinity is God, God gave us these commands on how to relate to one another in marriage, how to relate to one another in church life, how to relate to one another at work, and how to relate to one another in the community. He gave us these commands because that's who he is. And if you deny the doctrine of the Trinity, it has ramifications for how you do community. Fascinating, isn't it? And how you view other people and their importance and how you view them in honor and worship uh, and, uh, and honor and mutual submission. I, um, I went to a seminary. I'm going to finish with this. We'll close with prayer. I went to a seminary in Florida, uh, Reformed Theological Seminary, and uh, I got a Master's of Divinity, which is kind of a joke. I've mastered divinity. Um, it's an oxymoron. Anyway, um, at the end of our three years, uh, one of the things they wanted to, to do was to prepare us for our ordination exam. And an ordination exam is usually where a church uh, kind of gathers around a person that thinks they're called to ministry and just ask them some important questions about doctrine. They want to make sure they handle the Bible well and, and, and uh, make sure that you know, they agree with kind of what our eight essentials would be. They have some understanding of some essential truths. And so the way that my seminary prepared me is they uh, took me and three students, three of us would each day in class would go sit on the front of the classroom and then um, some of my professors from seminary would come and drill us with some questions, okay? And, and you can imagine, like, this was super intimidating. I mean, these guys were, I mean, you're talking Oxford, Harvard, Princeton PhDs. And uh, in fact, some of these guys that asked me some of these questions helped translate uh, the original Hebrew language into the NLT that you read today. That's why it's kind of, I have an affinity towards the NLT because I know some of the professors that helped translate it. And, and so I'm standing up there. It's my turn. My question's coming. And I'm a nervous wreck. And, and I'm praying, you know, that they're going to ask me the offensive line for the Seattle Seahawks. I felt good about that one, you know, or maybe the Super Real World 48 winner. I don't know, something I might know. And, um, and here's the question I got when it was my turn. Sean, tell us, did God die on the cross? That was my question. And uh, in my answer, I, I mentioned a bunch of big words that I didn't understand and quoted some counsels that I never read. And, and um, somehow they managed to let me pastor here at Coastal Community Church. Anyway, um, actually, when I answered the question, I said, um, I'm going to go with what I know. Okay? I'm going to go with what I know. I said, here's what I think scriptures revealed to us. The death of Jesus Christ was sufficient to cover the sins for the whole world and was efficient for the elect of God. That's what I said. I said, however, I also know that the Trinity, the Godhead, can in no way be separated. Because if you, one person of the Godhead perishes in some way, then the God ceases to be God. And so I know that Jesus' death was sufficient, but I know the Trinity couldn't be separated. And I said, the rest to me is mysterious. 
What do you think? Not bad, huh? Not bad, right? Um, I got rebuked by one of my professors and said mystery was a cop-out. Mystery was a cop-out. And um, I gently said to him, I said, I'm sorry that you completely understand everything about the God that you worship. Because I, I don't. I don't. He, he does some things that are not inside my grid and inside my box. And then when I read the Doctrine of Trinity, I don't, I, when I really think deeply about it, which some of you will leave here and do, okay, because you're, you're, you know, you're deep thinkers, you're going to go, I can't get my mind around it, right? And uh, the Doctrine of the Trinity is one of our core doctrines at Coastal Community Church. It's, doc, it's essential number two. And I'm going to tell you, it's nearly essential for us to get our heads and our minds around the doctrine of the Trinity. But the Bible clearly teaches that our God is one God. And he has revealed himself in three persons. Is that mysterious? Yes. Is that the truth about our God? Yes. Can our God be fully known? No. However, our God is a relational God. He didn't haphazardly give us guidance on earthly relationships, but rather he gave us truths to be modeled from his perfect relationship within his own Godhead. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Let's close with prayer. Heavenly Father, this is a, it's a tough truth. It's a hard one. It's a difficult one to, to get our, our, our heads around. Oh, but God, um, all of us in this room, I think, would recognize the importance of relationships. I mean, we, uh, it in some ways defines our humanity. And God, I'm excited because I think it's this doctrine and, and the instruction that you've given us on how to do earthly relationships is just an overflow of your very nature and character. You're a triune God who um, you relate perfectly in community, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so God, that gives me encouragement because... Um, It gives me encouragement because you have given us instruction how to relate to one another. And when we, when we obey your instruction, what we're doing is we're obeying who you are. And that is good. And that is perfect. And that is right. And so, God, help us to bend the knee to earthly relationships as you've revealed how we need to live them out so that we can know the, the perfect unity and the, the perfect um, honor that you have within your very nature. I pray for, uh, you know, we hit on marriages here this, this morning, God. I pray for the marriage in this room that's struggling, God. I, I pray that as they draw near to Christ and Christ, you honor the Father and the Holy Spirit resides in their hearts, God, that it would be two people growing, growing closer to Christ. As they grow closer to Christ, they will grow, grow closer to one another. Um, I pray for the one that came in here and they were really lonely today. Uh, and as I'm talking, that about relationship. They're like, I, I desire earthly relationship. I, I pray, God, that they might find a community here of people that love them and model for them um, the nature of our God that we just sang to this morning. Um, God, I would thank you for how you've revealed yourself. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. And as your people, God, we bow in need of Christ. We lift him up 
And in so doing, God, lifting up your son, he, he brings honor to you. Thank you for the Holy Spirit working in our hearts, God, and dragging us into the kingdom, God. And when we were far from you, you grabbed a hold of our hearts and made us alive to the truth, God. We thank you for that. Holy Spirit, as you're working in this room here today, I pray that you're dragging, opening eyes spiritually for the one that's sitting in this room and their eyes were awakened to truth today. God, I pray they'd acknowledge that as a God thing and they would worship Christ because their eyes were open to the truth. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Guys, this is our offering time. If you're a guest with us this morning, um, thank you so much for being here. We are not after your money, okay? Uh, this offering is one of the ways we worship God. And uh, if you'd like to take part in that, you're certainly welcome. As a guest, we'd love to have one thing from you on the side of that bulletin is a tear-off. And uh, if you would just fill that out, we just want to send you a thank you card for coming. Um, after the service, uh, we always have a member of our prayer team up here. They usually wear a purple shirt. And uh, if you're here today and you came in and you're like, man, I'd really just like to pray with someone uh, about some of the things that are going on in my life, they are always here to minister to you in that way. Joey?